Hey there, welcome to Jed Bangers Ball. I am your host, Jed Mayhew. Today on the show, we have Scott Carlson from most notably Repulsion, um, but also a member of classic death metal band Death, uh, and also Cathedral, among others. And uh, a guy here in L.A. Uh, who uh, always is around playing music and sharing music and turning people on to records and songs and bands that you may or may not have heard of. Uh, a lot of stuff I haven't heard of that he's played for me over the years. I actually met Scott um, at a ZigZag show early on in the band. We were playing at the Echo. I don't remember who we were playing with, but we had had this song scavenger um the first single and this magazine reached out i can't even remember what the magazine was it was a metal magazine i think it was a european one um and they would do these you know they'll do these cds uh like compilations of metal bands and they asked us to do one to throw a song on there and we had scavenger at the time it might have been the only thing we had at the time and they put it on there and it, and it was cool, um, but it was on one of those compilations with a bunch of sort of clicky drum uh, extreme metal bands. I don't even know what you call that. I guess it's like modern, modern heavy metal. Um, and so we were on there with that. And he was getting on a flight to go to Europe to play some shows, I believe, with Cathedral. It must have been. Um, and I think he bought the the magazine uh, to hop on the plane and r have something to read. And he listened to the CD and he said uh, that it immediately um, st stood out because it was our ours was so like lo-fi and raw compared to everybody else. But we played a show in the Echo, and uh, after the show, he came up and, and introduced himself. Um, and this was God. This was like almost ten years ago, um, and we've been friends ever since. And we attempted to record a Celtic Frost song. Um, which never came out, uh, but uh, we talk about that a little bit in the podcast. So, uh, yeah, let's get into it here uh, with Scott Carlson. It's really hard to interview. We're going to go. It's really hard to interview um, your wife or someone that you've been friends with for a super uh, long time. I did an interview with Jay the other day. Yeah, I interviewed. Those are always funny. You know, Jay was great, though. Jay, Jay was great because I've known him for so long, but I've known him from, like, just, like, uh, meetups at like South by Southwest. That's when I first met him. Yeah. And, um, you know, we didn't really know each other in a hangout way until, until now. Um, but at the time it was like when I interviewed him, it was just like, we'd seen each other so many times <laughs> over the years, just at like music festivals or whatever, you know? Yeah. I've done interviews with him where I start like revealing way too much shit. And I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. I forgot we were in the middle of an interview. Let's back that up to right there. For like a print <laughs> interview or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, he, you were interviewing him or he was interviewing you? He was interviewing me. Oh, for Decibel? Yeah, Decibel. Or, or he's interviewed me for all kinds of shit. Right. Um, different magazines. And uh, the other day, the interview he did with me was for this book that this guy in Detroit is doing on repulsion. Okay. So <clears throat> there's going to be a section in the book about the artwork on Horrified. Right. Which has a funny history yeah tell um, me about that because that's like a classic uh that's like a classic uh image of like a monster for like <laughs> punk fans or whatever like yeah that, that that one's right up there well i mean the uh, it was basically something that i i was i just changed the band name from genocide to repulsion 
and I took out a piece of paper. Uh, it was actually the back of a flyer and started sketching out um, a logo for Repulsion. I just wanted to see how it looked on paper, you know. And, uh, and then I was like, well, I need a, so like a skull or something on there too. And like the day that I drew the first Repulsion logo, I also drew that skull. And I had a comic book there that I was like using as a sort of template for the skull, like an old horror comic book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's got like a kind of a, one of those uh, almost like famous monsters or like a Boris Karloff. Yeah, it's, it's heavily inspired by like creepy, eerie um, EC comics sort of stuff. Yeah. And w was that like when you when you guys started that band, though, how old were you when you started that band? The original version of it, I was probably about 17, maybe. Yeah. And you, you didn't start on bass, though. No, I just, I started out just, actually, it's funny. Um, in like 1980, I think yeah. it was like 80, the fall of uh, 1980, I finally, I was able to switch over to this um, high school that I wanted to go to. I was in ninth grade, so it was like in Michigan at that time. You had junior high school and high school. I think now it's middle school and high school. So I was in ninth grade. And uh, I got to switch over to this school called Whittier, which is like a fine arts-focused um, school downtown. And uh, it took me a couple of years to get in there just because there was a waiting list. And on the first day, I ran into Matt Olivo, um, the guitarist of Repulsion, who I'd known since we were little kids, like sort of casually. Like we, at one point when we were both in Cub Scouts, like we'd have a Cub Scout meetings at his dad's house in his basement sometimes. And, um, but we never really hung out like, you know, on the weekends or anything like alone, just one-on-one. -on -one. And, uh, I ran into him at school that day and I was like, we were on the bus and he just kind of followed me home after school and we were hanging out in my room and I played him some Judas Priest because I knew he liked Kiss, <laughs> but he'd never like really been exposed to like heavy metal. Sure. The, like the current shit that was going on. So I think, uh, British Steel was like a fairly new release at that time. Yeah, 1980. <clears throat> and uh, so I was like playing British Steel and I busted out my electric guitar and I was like... What kind of know, guitar did you have at the time? I had a Hondo II uh, Ibanez Iceman copy. Nice. That's like a total <laughs> I Celtic wish I had Frost that guitar almost. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, for, at that time, it was a Paul Stanley guitar, right, of course. But right. um, <clears throat> So yeah, I was like, you know, wowing him with some uh, grinder and breaking the law and shit like that. And uh, I was like, yeah, man, you should get a guitar and like we could start a band, you know, you can be the rhythm guitar player. So I made him a tape that had like the, some Sabbath and Priest and shit on it. And uh, we went to the, like the mall to the music store and he picked out a guitar, like a $75 Hondo 2 Strat or something. And within a couple weeks, he was like playing everything on the tape, no right. for no. And I was like, holy shit, man, this guy's just got it. So it's so I was funny, like, man, oh, like I had a friend a like that too, it was like, <laughs> you know who he was a basketball player at our school he was like the best basketball player but he could like play anything on on guitar you know like and i never understood how that how some people just have that thing yeah. you know it's like a natural mechanical ability to just put your fingers in the right place or something you know and like yeah, i but struggled it's, with it it's notes though which is weird because um i i can kind of get it with drums i always feel like you're either kind of born a drummer and you can get better, but you're, if you're not that guy, you're never going to be like, like, I'm never going to be a good drummer, you know, because yeah. I can't keep time anyways, <laughs> like, just clapping, you know? Yeah. So, like, 
it's it's amazing to me when people are good guitar players right off the bat because of like you're you're playing notes still, but I guess it's like an ear thing. You like hear yeah. it or something, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can hear like I have a pretty good ear for like picking out notes and stuff like that, but like it's the mechanical part of it that's I have stubby fingers. And right. I'm just not. Uh, yeah, me too. I'm not. Uh, not mechanically inclined. I'm like not that. either. I'm. I'm just raw at it, but. Um, so he, w- he came back and he was just ripping on like yeah. Judas Priest stuff. Like. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay, like, uh, maybe I'll get a bass or <laughs> yeah, something like exactly. that. And, and, uh, you know, for a while we had another friend in high school named Sean McDonald, who was like him and I were the guys who bought all the records, everybody else. Like Matt didn't really buy a lot of records. He was just kind of like, uh, into playing mm-hmm. and I would tape him stuff and he'd pick up a record here and there. But uh, mostly, like, me and my buddy Sean were, like, you know, competing to, like, who's got the latest n- fucking underground band we could find. We were super into <coughs> the new wave of British heavy metal. And luckily for us, there were a few record stores in Flint that had import sections and special ordered, that kind of stuff. So What were the bands that they were able to come through then? Oh, man, we had everything. I mean, uh, you know, Holocaust, Raven, Venom. Tigers of Pantang, right. uh, Fist, Witchfinder General, right. Merciful Fate. Uh, was it hard to find like like punk records though? No, no. It's actually easier to find punk records than metal records, even because most of the like college age dudes that were working at the local record stores were more, you know, focused on the punk stuff. So right, and I guess it would be American stuff too. It wouldn't be necessarily like imports. Yeah, I mean, all the, a lot of English punk was, you know, the the main stuff that was on like Clay and that stuff, Discharge and things like that. Those were always easy to find, Sex Pistols records, whatever. Sure. Um, but one day I was at this record store called Grapevine, and I was always buying like Venom, like the heaviest shit I could find. And uh, this guy that worked there... Um, uh, he was in like a local punk band and uh, he walked up to me one day and he's like, you like the really heavy shit, right? And I was like, yeah, I can't remember when this was, maybe 82. <laughs> and he, uh, he's wearing a Walkman because he would li- didn't want to listen to the music they were playing in the store. <laughs> so he had a cassette like Walkman in his pocket and he was like wearing those little headphones yeah. around the store. That's hilarious. And he took his headphones off and put them on my head and like I was just fucking blown away by like your garden state moment there. And it was the, uh, the Bad Brains Roar cassette. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that was like my first exposure to punk rock. Yeah. Because I used to see... Um, the Sex Pistols and the Dead Boys in magazines. And I just figured they weren't any good because they had short hair. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like... Yeah, no, I mean... I, I, <laughs> I figured short hair meant they didn't have any distortion on their guitars. They probably had a keyboard player. And I had a weird thing where I was just like, uh, if you played like a Strat... Like if you played a Fender, you were like punk. And if you played a Gibson, <laughs> you were like an asshole. That was my whole thing. Like, and the fir- and then the first guitar I got was Les Paul. Like, yeah. when I got a fir- a real guitar, you know. But, uh, but that was like a weird thing. And I think I had read, I think I had read like Robert Smith said that or something like that. So that I just took it as gospel, you know. <laughs> or I mean, you know, or you just saw like album the backs of album covers and you didn't know what the music sounded like and you just made these judgments in your mind, you know, or uh, figured figured this must be the way it is because. I had no one to tell me any different, you know, Yeah. at that time. So yeah, you had seen the Sex Pistols like on TV, though. No, no, no I'd never heard the music. Right. I, the thing is, like, 
the older I did, I wasn't really influenced musically by like older people other than my dad, who liked Black Sabbath and right. Golden Earring and right. ELO and he was into a lot of seventies rock, you know, still. He was I mean, he was raised on Elvis and shit like that. And sure. he loved the Stones and the Beatles and then when he would buy something more modern, it was like, you know, he you know, he turned me on to Golden Earring Moontown, which is one of my all time favorite albums. Dutch and, and uh, yeah, Dutch band. Yeah, but you know when Radar Love was big on the radio, my dad liked that song, so he bought the album, and then we discovered that the fucking whole thing was a complete masterpiece. You know. Yeah. Um, there's <laughs> that's actually probably the weakest song on the whole album, and yeah. it's still great. It's but funny. Did they have records that came out before that too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They started they until um, a few months ago, like this time last year, actually. When George Kuhlman's the guitar player um, announced that he was ill, I think he has um, MS or something like that. I can't remember exactly what, but he he uh, retired from playing. They were like the longest running band with all the original members. Wow! Um, because the singer joined Barry Hay. I think he joined him in like '67 or '68 when he was like 18 or 19 years old. <coughs> And, uh, and the drummer joined like a year later, maybe. And they were the same guys until right. they've just basically stopped playing. Wow. Yeah, I remember when I went over there, I was looking for like uh, Outsiders Records or uh, Q65 or yeah. whatever. And what was the singer for the Outsiders? What was that guy's name? I can't remember. Oh, it's like Watts and Waddy or something like that. Um, but I remember uh, someone told me they were like, oh, you need to check out like the early Golden Earring stuff. It's not... All their stuff is great. love, you know. Like, well, the thing is, they they started out as a sort of like a freak beat band, and they're one of the best like garage freak bands out there. Yeah. They're fucking amazing. Their stuff is gr it's really great. And then um, they like a lot of bands from that era. They just sort of like migrated towards progressive rock, right? And hard rock is the '70s moved on. They got less progressive and just more straight up hard rock. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they're they're fucking incredible. I mean, their catalog, starting with like the the first album where they dropped the plural and became just Golden Earring, which is called Eight Miles High. Mm -hmm. It has a cover of Eight Miles High on one side of it. That's like the whole side of sure. the record. And then the other side is just a bunch of like heavy rock tracks uh, yeah. with flute and pretty jammy. And then they just got heavier and heavier up until and including Moontan is probably the probably the heaviest record maybe the one before that right in that period like that sweet spot when all the like people like to call it proto metal you know like yeah. that heavy super heavy rock stuff from like 69 to like 72 or 73 golden earring were like right there yeah that bonehead the crunchers proto metal stuff i mean that that stuff was kind of like what i was listening to when i started doing zigzags or whatever was that i put it put it on for jeff uh, the new drummer the other day because he's from Baltimore and I was like oh have you have you heard White Boy and the Average Rat Band mm -hmm. and he's like oh, I never heard those guys and I was like I think they're from fucking Maryland like you should check them out and then I put it on for him he's like this sounds like zigzags <laughs> I was like yeah <laughs> so I was listening to this a lot when we started the band but so when you guys were starting though and so then you you switched over to bass and then uh, uh, your buddy had already mastered uh, most of uh, Judas Priest's catalog at that point yeah yeah, then we just sort of, <clears throat> we had this, uh, like I said, we had, my buddy Sean was playing bass, and uh, he made the cardinal sin of 
having a girlfriend in high school and we were like, fuck this shit, you know? So we, we had to let him go because like he had other priorities besides hanging out in the basement with us. Did you guys sit him down and tell him this to his face? Uh, it probably wasn't very, you know, handled very well. You know how that shit is when you're a teenager. It never is, you know? Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, he was out. We probably just told him you're out. <laughs> like simple as that, you know, yeah. like who knows? I don't remember exactly what happened, but <clears throat> he, he, be, you know, thankfully he remained friends with us over the years. In fact, I just saw him a couple weeks ago. We're still really good friends, really close, but, um, he was still always an important part. He was always sort of there, you know, like loaning me a bass, loaning me an amp, things like that. Right. He was always around, like, you know, and uh, giving us feedback on the songs we were writing and stuff like that. But we just kind of were in this place. There's a scene in the, uh, in the uh, Def Leppard VH1 movie where they are getting ready to rehearse. They're in like a basement or something, and the drummer shows up with his girlfriend. And he's like, oh, hey, guys, I'm not going to rehearse tonight. We're going to the movies. And they're like, you're with us or you're with her. And he's like, like, we're just going to the movies. And they're like, get out of here. You know, and they just fire him on the spot. And that's exactly <laughs> when I saw that movie, I laughed because that's pretty much exactly how we felt back then. It was just like we're sitting in the bay. We could be out partying and like, you know, trying to date girls and shit like that. But instead, we're sitting in the basement with two shitty guitars, like staring at each other with big gulps and like microwave burritos um and like trying to fucking you know come up with some magic you know i i think about that often i think about like sometimes when i'm in a frustrating situation in a band and i think about like what like what someone in the 70s would do right now where it's like <laughs> this guy's like oh yeah hold on i gotta like text my wife right now like oh okay i gotta okay hold on i'm gonna go take out take this phone call so i'm just like what would happen if this was like Thin Lizzy or something in like 74 and they're like practicing every day like eight hours a day and, and one guy was like oh I gotta go outside to like t talk to my wife or something like yeah. they just boot him out of the band like Beth I hear you calling yeah exactly <laughs> but like you couldn't you can't do that shit anymore though yeah. like they there you have to like be uh, understanding now in a way that it's just hilarious like like even like Iron Maiden it was like uh, Steve Harris is like the only original member of that band because he just went through so many dudes before he like got a lineup. You know? Yeah, he just fire people for like no reason or just for like you know showing up late or whatever. Or like that Twisted Sister documentary, the same way. <laughs> just like you have to put on makeup and build the PA every night or you're out of the band. I love in the Iron Maiden documentary. I think it's called The Early Years. Have you seen that? Yeah. And it's fucking brilliant. And uh, there's a guitar player who looks like, you know, like a dad now. Yeah, yeah. He's like in and a he's like, yeah, something. I'm the guy who like <laughs> quit the band because I was like, when Dave Murray came in, he was like, I don't play in a two guitar band. Yeah. He's so like he in a walked bar up. or something. He's like <laughs> got like a little cap on. He's yeah. And they were like, it. okay, see you later. Yeah. I know. What an amazing <laughs> reason too, just to like, just to bail immediately. Yeah. I, I got to respect that, though, like that, uh, you know, conviction, you know. He owned it. Yeah. Um, so when you guys started playing together, though, like you guys hadn't really heard the punk rock stuff yet. Like when you guys started playing. Well, at the, by the time Repulsion, the even the first version of that started, yeah. I mean, it was probably like, you know, we've 83. And yeah, that was right around when I got like fully into hardcore. 
So when you heard that uh, Bad Brains tape, though, was did you go back to those dudes and be like, dudes, we're doing it wrong, or like, we got to change this shit up? Or like, no, it just kind of like kicked me off on listening to that stuff, right. you know, and just incorporating it. There was no way I was going to stop listening to, you know, Maiden and Priest at that time. They those bands were just to me they were super heavy and. Um, uh, they were just everything. I mean, I don't think I've ever been. I was a big Kiss fan when I was, uh, you know, in grade school, but I don't think I was ever more obsessed with a band than I was with Judas Priest from like the late seventies until about eighty two or eighty three. Uh-huh. I was just like completely devoted to Judas Priest. Yeah, and and uh, I just loved everything about them. The the I still love Rob Halford's voice and sure. the, the guitars. It's just to me, they're, they're the ultimate heavy metal. Band. They're really like one of those bands where I think about them as they can do anything. Like in, they can sound th- like I think of like Thin Lizzy and I think of Iron Maiden and I think of Judas Priest and I think how Judas Priest can kind of cover all of the bases that yeah. all those other bands can do their thing really well and maybe a couple other things, but Judas Priest really can like with that voice. Can really cover all the bases, and they did do it all. I mean, yeah. they, <laughs> they, you know, they did uh, Turbo, which you know, if you if you erased Rob Halford and put Billy Idol on that record, it would just sounded like a Billy Idol record or something. Totally, right? yeah. And uh, um, you know, they did ballads in the early days that were really like really gentle ballads on. Well, the, the early early album. record. I mean, that early stuff is almost like uh, in goes in almost like Uriah Heep direction uriah heap queen sabbath yes and then they also invented their own brand of heavy metal which is what i consider heavy metal like sad wings of destiny is kind of like to me the template for all heavy metal that came after it right right that's what i was thinking it's actually it's the queen thing too that like they can that with rob halford they could get into that that range that queen can too like uh freddie mercury would no one else can do but maybe rob halford get close to Freddie Mercury vocally you know he's amazing yeah so yeah I I was just starting to listen to hardcore and um the the second thing that kicked me off was uh going to see Accept I think (laughs) I think it was Accept the first time they played in America yeah and of course it was a gathering of the headbangers and it was in like January or something it was freezing fucking cold and we were standing in a line outside the venue for hours waiting for the doors to open, as we did back then. Sure. And uh, uh, I was talking to this guy uh, in line who had like a Venom patch on the back of his jacket or something. And um, I was telling him that I'd heard the Bad Brains and shit like that. And he was like, have you ever heard GBH? And I was like, no. And he was like, dude, you got to fucking check out GBH. Like, you like Motorhead and Venom? You got to fucking check out GBH. So um, I went and bought a, the latest GBH album, and I think it was like City Baby Attacked by sure. Rats. Yeah. Or City Baby's Revenge, actually. Right. And uh, it was like brand new at the time and just fucking blew me away. It was exactly what he said it was, you know? Yeah, I remember like uh, Dave Mustaine talking about that record. Not necessarily that record, but talking about GBH. And I can't remember if it was on an interview or if it's like weird, some bootleg tape that I had where he was just, it was right after he had been kicked out of Metallica 
and uh, he's he's talking about he's like oh yeah the Metallica shit's so fucking slow he's like but everything's slow to me except maybe like GBH or something like that <laughs> <laughs> I was like that's so awesome that that's like his idea of fast you know at that time I suppose you know yeah he probably sounds like he was talking out of his ass really doesn't it <laughs> I mean the interview is Metallica was pretty fast uh, back then yeah around the time that he got kicked out of the band yeah they were pretty fast for sure but he, he was just pissed off I yeah think, you know? he was sure. also talking about how the crowd was chanting Kirk had Kirk Hammett sucks before, <laughs> before they came out on stage I saw, saw something with him the other day where he was talking about coming up with the name and just saying like you know he wanted to come up with something more metal than Metallica yeah yeah, maybe that's pretty metal. Yeah. Um, so, oh, so you you saw? Um, oh, you went and got GBH. Mm-hmm. I was, what I was gonna ask you though was, um, were there like, uh, were there local like hardcore bands in Flint that you saw? Or did you go to any like those kind of like local punk shows at the time? Yeah, that's how we actually started playing live. Was yeah. um, there was a band called Dissonance from Flint, and they were like the the local. They were a hardcore band, and they were like the local like rock stars in the. Not that they acted like rock stars, sure, but sure. you know everybody looked up to them. They were the, they were the darlings of the scene, and they were also sort of like the, 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 the face of it. They, um, Phil the drummer, um, booked a lot of the shows that came through Flint. I mean, Flint had a pretty thriving hardcore scene, like Suicidal Tendencies, Black Flag, COC, DRI. All, 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 the, all those bands played there. Yeah, um, and sometimes skipping over Detroit and playing in Flint because those bands weren't necessarily getting booked by professional booking agencies that were booking the clubs, you know. So um, Flint got a lot of cool hardcore shows like that. Um, And uh, so since we didn't really fit in, our stuff was really fast. Um, We didn't really fit in with, like, the local metal bands that mostly played covers and the ones that didn't did their own like hall shows and stuff but they were playing more like you know Nazareth and shit like that at sure. the time so um I was like you know what I'm just gonna go down to a hardcore show and like see if we can get booked on one of those I mean we fit in more with that stuff so so I started going to the the hardcore shows and like uh you know talking to Phil and Tanya from Dissonance and saying hey man my band we'd like to play and they're like, well, what do you guys play? And I'm like, metal, but it's fast. And they're like, like Black Sabbath. They had yet not yet right. heard like Metallica or, or Slayer or anything. So, um, had you guys heard Metallica and Slayer at that point? Like, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and so, and maybe a couple other bands. I can't. Maybe maybe it was just those two were kind of like the main ones. Venom, of course. Yeah. You know, not that they were super fast, but they right. but they were considered fast at the time. You know. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, stuff like that. Our set consisted of, you know, whatever originals we were working on, plus like a f- couple Metallica songs, a couple Slayer tunes, uh, GBH, Venom, uh, shit like that. And even Iron Maiden. We played an Iron Maiden song, the song Iron Maiden. I think we used to play that. And uh, Exciter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Exciter came on the other day when I was, I was listening. Wait, so I was listening. Uh, I was listening to Hellhammer, and then Exciter came on, <laughs> and it was such a punch as far as the uh, fidelity difference that I had to stop and like check out what it was, and it was uh, uh, what it was like scream. Oh fuck, I 
can't remember what the song was, but early exciter. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Their first few records are great. Yeah. And they were one of the first of those bands that I got to see live because they, they came to Detroit or, or I think I went to Cleveland. We actually drove all the way from Flint to Cleveland, which is a four hour drive or something. Sure. To see Exciter back in the day. Did Dissonance ever uh, record anything or put anything out? They did a couple songs on a on a what was the label from like Reno that uh, Kevin Seconds Better oh. Youth Organization oh, okay. is yeah. that it was that the name of the I don't label? Know, I know the I don't know that I mean I know Seven Seconds but I'm trying to, I can't remember what the label was called. Um, there was that Seven of Two Records which is more like a pop punk. Label. I think it was Better Youth Organization yeah. is the label I'm thinking of. There's a comp on that label and they did some they put some stuff out on that and they recorded other stuff but it never got released until like you know there was a posthumous like cd reissue that came out yeah i wonder like there's always those um i mean a lot of that stuff i heard through um like those bloodstains compilations like yeah. bloodstains across texas and then there's bloodstains i think there's like a midwest one and i wonder if some of those bands made it on to those comps yeah, the guy who did the layout on the Repulsion album, um, he actually was the original lead singer of Dissonance, and then um, he went to school and they got someone else. But yeah, so you guys started playing shows and like hardcore shows. Yeah, then. yeah, and that was like perfect for us, really, because we also were never the type of uh, I've never felt like part of any sort of scene. You know, like I'm not a big fan of like dressing the part. You like everything, though. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. You're you're someone that I know that likes. A, I mean, garage rock to extreme grindcore that you've helped in. Yeah, I mean, I there. like. You know, there's hair metal bands that I like, sure. and there's uh, there's yeah, pretty much any kind of genre. There's something that I probably like like in it, but um, yeah. Even then, it was like I wasn't into. I mean, sure, I had a vest with like patches on it and shit like that, but I wasn't like a you know, following the, any sort of like fashion guide sure. or anything like that. And when I got into punk, a lot of people I know, you know, that were my age, as soon as they got into punk, they had to get a mohawk or, you know, cut their hair really short or dye it green or start wearing spikes or, or whatever. There was like some sort of like fashion statement they had to make to go along with it. So I never really got into that. So even with the metal thing, there were always people that were way more metal looking than us. Sure. So um, we fit in good with the uh, the hardcore scene because there were a lot of kids, especially it always seemed like the skater kids were more the ones that more just didn't give a fuck about the fashion right. side of it. They wore like, you know, Dickies pants that they bought at the thrift store and like flannel shirts and shit. And well, when you see like those early hardcore photos or, or, or video in L.A., like... Um, Everyone's just got short hair and like a white t-shirt on and like, yeah. you know, they all look like just like angry, young, suburban boys, yeah. you know. And that's when we came into the to the punk scene was when hardcore was taken over. So well, hardcore was dominant already at that time. So, yeah, it was just we fit right in with the hardcore thing. And um, in a town like Flint, which is a, you know, I guess a mid-sized city, um, there's not a huge amount of culture there um, compared to like an L.A., New York type of thing. So there wasn't necessarily a scene for metal and a scene for punk. It was just like the 
the hardcore scene was more of like a weirdo scene. Mm -hmm. It was thespians. It was um, gay people. It was just oddballs from every corner of the galaxy yeah. that sort of hung out together because we're all weird. Yeah, we, I mean, I grew up in a small town, and it was just we didn't have enough people to have anything but one scene of just like weirdos that wanted to go to a show, yeah. wanted to go anywhere other than the football game. Yeah, or, or the the bar where the cover band was playing. Right, yeah. right. And that's exactly what we had. So you'd have like a hall show, and all the bands would be pretty diverse. And the crowd was pretty accepting of, um, I remember when, um, you know, St. Vitus toured with Black Flag and they came through Flint. What year was that when Black Flag had kind of like gotten a little slower and heavier when they were doing that? Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. It was like the Loose Knot tour, I okay, think. Right, and right. Um, Vitus just had the first album out. Right. And uh, uh, when I saw St. Vitus uh, several years ago here and I talked to Scott Riegers, and I was like, I saw the show in Flint back in like 85. And he, he lit up. He was like, that was the only show on that whole tour where people actually liked us. Right. And I'm like, yeah. And it makes sense because people there just appreciated that you fucking came to Flint, to yeah. Flint and played a show. And people weren't like, oh, these guys are too slow or too this or too that. The guy that um, supplied the PA um, for all those Hall shows. Slayer even played in Flint, and yeah. we opened for them in like late '84. And the guy that um, this guy named Keith Jennings, who was like a local kind of a hippie dude, he wore bell bottoms in the mid '80s, and he had like long frizzy hair, and he had his own band called Hyper, which you would love. Yeah, I'll send you a link to their <laughs> stuff. It's like total H Y P Y R. Yeah, and it's like total like bonehead cruncher, yeah. like. It, I mean, in 84, today, these guys are still playing. They still play gigs. And their music still, they still sound like blue cheer, you yeah. know? I mean, that's why I was got so obsessed with uh, Metallica and, and namely, like, Cliff Burton early on was just, like, that same thing where it was just, like, the dude looks different. He's dressed like a hippie, but he's wearing a Misfits shirt. So it was, like, this real, like, mind fuckery of, like, and having no one there to tell me anything about it, it was, like, oh, this is different, and I don't understand why. Which kind of became really, I became really obsessed with that early yeah. on. You know, same kind of idea or whatever. Yeah, like just like cross-pollinating genres and not sort of dressing the part or whatever, doing your own thing, but being in this like extreme music scene. You know. Yeah, the Cliff Burton thing is like you know now it's become this sort of like oh everybody. You know, we're obviously for obvious reasons people worship Cliff Burton. Sure, but that was already there before the guy died uh, tragically at a really young age. He was already the coolest dude in Metallica. Like right. that was already a known. When I went to see Metallica, every time I went to see Metallica, I was like, I gotta be on You're Cliff's side of cliff the stage. Zone. Yeah, I want to be in the Cliff <laughs> zone because I want to see him. The major rager, you yeah. know, with his foot up on the monitor and his bell bottom yeah. flapping in the wind, you know, like fucking headbanging. And that was like, it wasn't just me. It was like everybody was like, Cliff Burton is fucking cool. These, you know, who else was doing like bass solos uh, right. in the studio on their albums yeah. back then? And it was, you know, he was cool before um, he was sort of like sainted by. Yeah, I think I well, see, I had heard it like in like '88 because I had some I had the, I had the thing where I had my friends who were all from Southeast Asia, 
and they had older brothers that were all obsessed with like Slayer, Nuclear Assault, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, whatever, you know, and they had the shirts and they had the jeans cut like certain ways. And so it's like all these little tie dudes with like super long hair, like into all this shit in this like trailer park, you know? And so I'm just like, whoa, what the fuck's up with these guys, you know? <laughs> and so I started listening. I heard the music from them. And like, uh, and so when I saw it, I got into it visually or whatever. But then like, this is like 88. And then like 93 or something when my friend gave me like a Dead Kennedys cassette and like a Misfits tape that he had made for me. And then like had drawn like the um, Crimson Ghost or whatever on there, the Misfits logo. Then I went, was like, oh, that's what Cliff Burton was wearing. And even Dave Mustaine and James Hetfield were wearing misfit shit too. But I still didn't have anyone to explain it to me, but I already knew who Metallica was. So I was just like, what the fuck's going on? Like, I thought those guys, that's a punk band. Like, how could these guys be into a punk band? It still didn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> didn't make sense to me until maybe 98. <laughs> <laughs> so even to see it, I mean, would even be even more insane, I guess, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it was cool. Um, I, I thought that uh, I was really happy that I discovered hardcore, but I was kind of bummed out when, when hardcore discovered metal because I, I didn't really care for a lot of the hardcore bands when they went metal. It's like I wanted them to stay sure. hardcore. There were uh, exceptions like, I mean, I guess the bands that were always sort of like that, like Corrosion of Conformity. Yeah. Um, uh, DRI, on the other hand, like when they went more metal, it just, I didn't want, I was bummed right. out that they did that. But like uh, Poison Idea, to me, just got stronger and stronger as they went along to the point where they became like almost like an American motorhead. Yeah. Know? I mean, Poison Idea. And that's a great example because Poison Idea always had some melody to the vocals too. Like they had almost like a pop thing that they were able to make super dark and super heavy where those songs are really catchy Yeah. in a way that a Motorhead song is catchy, yeah. even though it's played super fast or whatever. But I mean, um, you mentioned it earlier, um, and I think of, uh, uh, oh God, what, why can't I fucking think of the name of the band? Um, the, the classic tour of um, where they went glam. Um, Discharge. Discharge, yeah. That's the classic sort of... That, yeah. They didn't even go crossover metal. They went even, like, wimpier. Yeah, it's like. so bizarre. I mean, I, it, that one is really bizarre to me, especially, like, you know, seeing them now. We shared a dressing room at Discharge uh, a couple years ago in Europe, and, like, you know, they're pretty hard dudes. Yeah. It's kind of amazing that they went that route, you Yeah. Know? But, um, but I know, think it's I guess they were just trying something different, you know? Well, they were, uh, yeah, what they were trying to make it or something. But, like, it's funny to think uh, a lot of those other bands were like, okay, we, we're bored with hardcore. Let's try something that's maybe a little bit challenging. And maybe some of them weren't up to the task musically to, like, pull off a metal thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then whereas Discharge was like, let's go fucking, like, glam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, uh, the Celtic Frost one too just blows my mind. But well, well yeah, you and I actually tried to learn uh, that uh, what was it, hot and nasty, or what was the song? We were Dance trying? sleazy. Dance sleazy. That's what yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dance sleazy. Yeah, um, yeah. So um, I can't remember where we were, but so you guys were. You guys opened up for Slayer though. Yeah. Wow. 
How, what was the venue like in Flint for Slayer? Uh, at that time? It was like a Ukrainian banquet hall. Yeah. And how many people did it hold? Uh, it held probably, you probably could have crammed like 400 in wow. there or something, but uh, maybe 200 people showed up. The Slayer had wow. already played the two previous nights in Detroit okay. at a club called Blondie's, which is like maybe the size, probably like not even the size of Spaceland or, you know. Right. Um, uh, tiny place. Yeah. I mean, they just like, it was amazing. They were, uh, to this day, those are the greatest concert rock concerts i've ever seen and they had like the full-on gear and stuff at that point too like they just had like a you know a couple of marshals each oh, and, i just uh, mean like the clothes or whatever like carrie king had the spiked yeah. wristbands but jeff hanneman was just like wearing a stinky leather jacket okay. and spandex pants right. and, <laughs> uh, but they were just like ferocious i mean yeah. they were so like the way they played the way they dug in on their instruments and uh and just the ferocity that they played with. And Dave Lombardo, like seeing Dave Lombardo play up close in a really tiny club. At that time, yeah. you, you, there's a lot of drummers nowadays that can do that kind of stuff. But at that time, he was like mind-blowing. And like when they were finished playing, it just it felt like you had just been in a room where a bomb exploded. You know, yeah. everyone was kind of, the lights went up and everybody in the club is just kind of staring at each other. Like, what the fuck just happened, you know? Were people moshing to Slayer and stuff at that point? Not really. No. Because, I mean, it was mostly metalhead dudes. Right. And it was mostly guys. I mean, there were, like, I, I can't even recall any females being at those shows. Yeah. In Flint, there were. Because there was just, like I said, more of a freak scene. scene yeah. And just everybody just showed up to everything. But those Detroit shows were, like, you know, it was, like, 300... Um, you know, leather-clad, long-haired um, Hesher dudes just fucking head-banging and, like, knocking each other around a little bit. You yeah. Know? It was fucking amazing. Because I feel like I didn't see a lot of the, the moshing stuff at Slayer and stuff until uh, maybe in the early 90s or something like that. But then and, and then I, the, the rumors we always heard were like, oh, these guys are, like, they have razor blades on their jackets and stuff, and they're, like, running around the pit, like, slicing <laughs> people's faces. <laughs> some of the Slayer crowds were, were some of the scariest audiences I've ever seen, actually, if you know. There, there was definitely, like, a mentality at Slayer shows that was like, let's fuck shit up, you yeah. know. Um, that got, that was pretty frightening, you know. Um, and then you guys kind of what what happened when, with the band? You guys decided to get stop it soon after that, or? Well, yeah, we made we recorded a bunch of stuff. And well, what happened really was uh, after we had been playing around the hardcore scene in Flint, maybe six months after we opened for Slayer. Um, you know, I was on this path of just like um, discovery, and it was everything had to be faster and heavier than everything else. So, like, when bands like these, like, secondary sort of like second wave, I mean, some of them are even probably considered first wave, but other thrash bands that would come out um, after Slayer, if they weren't as heavy as Slayer, I didn't even want to fucking know about it. Right. You know, so, or as fast. So it was like, I need something more, you know. Uh, so it's either got to be faster or heavier or more extreme more in some evil. way. So like more evil, more fucked up. So like noisier. 
yeah. was big for me. I, w- I really was into the idea of, of primitivism. So when I heard Hellhammer, for instance, right. I was fucking blown away. When I heard Voivod, yeah. that first album, those, which is yeah. so brutally those, heavy. Those, those early Voivod records and Hellhammer is like what, I, what I've been listening to, just <coughs> not just coincidentally like before this, but just because that's kind of, I feel this, I've, I've been listening to that stuff too because of that, how uh, you can't, purposely sound like that no it's hard yeah because if i was to go and record music like that i would be like oh man it sounds too lo-fi and it sounds <laughs> shitty but when when it's done perfectly like that and it captures the moment it's yeah. something really special because i don't like something to be that perfect or that clean you know yeah the the trick i think uh, to getting close is like to um not over rehearse your material and like don't spend so much time like trying to get the perfect fucking drum sound just yeah dial it in get it sounding pretty good and just start bashing away but still there's that like you know on hellhammer it's like three guys playing at the very height of their ability they're like they can't play any better right. they're trying yes as hard as they can to play as fast as they can and that's it they're at the limit right. and it just it's on the verge of falling apart and that's why there's that fucking magic in yeah. there you know yeah, there's something uh, there's something about the way that uh, those guitars are tuned, and the same thing with Voivod, whereas I think uh, Hellhammer he's tuned like a quarter step down or something, and then in Voivod they're tuned like a little bit higher than standard tuning in a weird way, huh. and it just creates this weird overtones or dissonance. I don't know if that's true or not, but I just yeah. it's one of my theories as I you know that I yell at my wife sometimes. <laughs> There's certainly like on the first Voivod record, it just sounds to me like they're they were fucking thrashing in the studio while they were recording it. They weren't fucking around, like they weren't phoning it in. Yeah, they were. It just sounds like you know, away is like probably fucking screaming and fucking gnashing his teeth while he's playing the drums. <laughs> you know, away, which is like that. I love that. That's like my favorite name. Anyone. They're still one of my favorite bands. Yeah. I mean, all all of their material, even the new stuff, is great. And I just like they're one of the few bands that never ever let me down. You know, yeah. so so did that sort of uh, search kind of lead you down to the death stuff? Yeah, yeah, that's in the spring. That's what I was getting to. Yeah. yeah. So in the spring of '85, I was starting to correspond like with uh, Chuck from Death, probably in late '84, early '85. And him and I would call each other once in a while and be like, you know, hey, man, you know, I'd send him a tape. This is our latest rehearsal. How had you heard of them? Uh, fanzines. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so that was the other thing that was great about the this one particular record store in Flint uh, called Wyatt Earp where um, the guy would just buy every fanzine that the distributor had. So any metal fanzines or punk fanzines, he would buy them from all over the country or all over yeah. the world. So I would go in there and buy all the fanzines and go home and like write letters to the people and be like, hey man, check out my band, you know, and send them a tape, just unsolicited. And I started corresponding with Chuck and um, realized when he sent me a tape, I'd read about Mantis, Mantis, they were called at the time. And um, he sent me a tape and by the time he sent it to me, he's like, oh, by the way, we just changed the name to Death. So, I listened to it and I immediately just thought like, wow, this sounds really similar to what we're doing. Like, and what we want to do, it was just like, um, 
Hellhammer, but like with a little more musical ability, like in the Slayer sort mm-hmm. of like leaning towards Slayer, um, and just kind of like hitting all the right, you know, ticking all the boxes that I was trying to tick with my own band. And uh, over the course of time, it just we realized that we should be playing together. So we did this crazy. Matt and I um, made this crazy pilgrimage down to Florida with our guitars and not, not much else in my car and um, drove up to Chuck's house in Florida and fucking started jamming in his garage. And it just didn't work out. You know, there were a lot of factors. The drummer wanted to be a singer in a band and there was no way to find another drummer at that time in Orlando, Florida. Yeah. And also... Um, on top of all that, just realizing that we were, weren't really on the same page. Like, speaking of like playing at the top of your ability, what I realized when I got to know Chuck better was that, oh, he actually wants to be like technical. Right. He plays primitive because that's how good he is. Whereas Matt was like a really fucking good guitar player, but he was into the idea. He shared my sentiment of like, let's just fucking bash this right. shit out and like, not think too hard about like coming up with a lot of notes. Let's just make it heavy and thrashy and trashy sounding. So Chuck didn't really, that's not really what he wanted to do. It just came out that way. Right. He, uh, you, if you he listen to his became, trajectory, like yeah, that's, that's amazing. what he, yeah. that's what he was intending to do all along. Sure, and when yeah. you hear what we did, that's what we were intending to do all along. So, yeah. um, while we were in Florida, one of the fanzines that, that I discovered uh, Mantis slash Death Through was this one called Guillotine that was from Orlando. And those guys were managing Death at the time. So we were bouncing around in Florida, staying at um, Mark and John from Guillotine's house and sometimes staying at Chuck's house with his parents. They All these guys lived at home with their parents. Yeah, I remember the documentary. So it was crazy yeah. that they were fucking letting us like stay at their houses. Sure. You know? And uh, so one day we were staying at Mark's house or we were at his house, the guy from Guillotine Magazine, and he had this shoe box that he always threw all the tapes that uh, people would send him in. And he pulls out this tape by this band from Toronto called Slaughter. Oh, yeah. And I, I heard that and I was just like, that's exactly i want to be in this fucking band right but since i can't since they already exist and they're already perfect i want to do something as close to that as possible or at least that mentality like to me they were like you know hellhammer but faster yeah and uh and they had a sense of humor which we always did because we weren't like i said we were never really into the whole like meddler than thou kind of thing like we didn't I've never like gone like what the fuck you know like gone on stage and been like hello Cleveland are you guys ready to fucking die I watched like that a, kind of shit I, I don't a do clip that of shit you guys at uh, that extreme obscene festival just because <laughs> uh, I was trying to I was trying to find some live repulsion stuff and uh, and I clicked on that because whenever we're in Europe, people are always like, oh, have you been to Extreme Obscene? Like, oh, there's people just walking around, they're just like piercing their genitals outside and <laughs> taking shit everywhere, you know? And I was just like, no, nah, I don't want, I don't, I haven't been there. Um, but it, the, the footage is pretty funny because you guys do look kind of, like, at least you and the guitar player look somewhat like 
normal and then the crowd just looks like a bunch of mutants yeah there's like fucking people like moshing in fucking uh santa claus costumes yeah i mean the santa claus guy i think had a sack of toys on his back and like uh (laughs) there's a great photo uh from that 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 a friend of mine took that where i'm like standing at the microphone singing there's this guy in this really fucking creepy looking troll mask (laughs) and he's like moshing in front of me and he's just pointing at me like he's telling you know die or something it's hilarious but i know what you mean because i feel the same way it's like i uh you know it's it's sometimes i have sometimes i find it hard to write lyrics because when i'm writing like something that's fast and heavy and or dark or whatever um i'm just not like an evil person <laughs> so it's like but i also don't want it to be goofy yeah you know but you gotta write stuff that fits in with the fucking yeah. shit but you also gotta be yourself so i mean you know uh it's it's just funny it's like almost either you take on like a a character and do it or you know i don't know it's like how evil are these guys really gonna be i just try to go back i've been writing lyrics for death breath lately and i just try to go back to me at like 17 18 years old sitting in my room with the horror comic books and um watching fucked up movies and porn and everything else that we fucking ingested back then and like think think about what it was like and just write you know songs about necrophilia and goofy shit like that and sure no i I feel the same way i I try to like revert back to my 13 year old self and think like what would I like because I still like the same shit I liked back yeah. then I never <laughs> I never really advanced musically as far as my taste went like I or, yeah. or changed you know it just I always liked this I, I, I kind of went in like it got into like hip-hop and stuff in like junior high and high school because I was like I have to like have something to talk to these girls about and like, that's <laughs> what they were listening to and like yeah. no one wanted to hear about uh, nuclear th- assaults thoughts on the environment or whatever you know and that's where I was getting my news <laughs> from you know so I was like kind of listening to like hip-hop and stuff but it, it, it didn't take until years later when people played because the, the stuff that I was listening to was not cool and never will be but like years later people played me like good stuff that I could get into but at the time it was like but yeah now I, I, I still like I still am listening to Hellhammer, you know, in the morning. Yeah. You know, I'm still watching like Italian horror movies and yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. Char- Charles Bronson movies, which are the same stuff that I sought out on cable TV when I was 14. I just watched uh, uh, Payback with um, uh, Lee Marvin. Have you seen that one? Yeah. Yeah. I had never seen that. That's, that's, that's good. good. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, so uh, things didn't work out with. Uh, death then but uh you just decided to come back to yeah we went back to flint um i think we were we were kind of in a rush it was like the end of summer and we like if we you know if we leave now like we can get back in time to see seven seconds are playing (laughs) that's a good reason and then like a week later exodus is playing Uh and we were like all right we got to tell chuck we're leaving so like we like sat chuck down like look man you know you rule you know, best of luck, but um, we don't have a drummer. This isn't working out. We're gonna head back home, and we did it pretty quickly. Like within like a week, we just fucking packed our shit up and yeah. left. It was sad, you know, because we really liked Chuck. Like we bonded like as friends, like really strongly. Like he was a fucking great guy. Um, 
I, you know, I still have fond memories of all that. It was a really good experience. Yeah. And it's sort of like um, seeing how um, obsessed and strong-willed Chuck was sort of like lit a fire under my ass yeah. to go home and like get my banding gear. And then, of course, after we left, he like got on a plane and went to San Francisco, you know, started a version of death out there, came back, and then he flew up to Toronto and joined Slaughter for a little while, and yeah. that didn't work out. And he ended up back in San Francisco, and that's when he started playing with Chris Reifert, and you know, the the classic death sound was born. That documentary is like it. Uh, we were talking about it earlier. It's like that's that one and. That uh, some kind of monster. Those ones are hard to watch for me, just because it, it makes me real uncomfortable about uh, being in bands. Just the like uncomfortableness that you have to <laughs> endure. You know, like yeah. There's that part where they go on tour without him, and it's just like so difficult to watch. Yeah. You know. Which I mean, I, uh, you know, you can make any argument you want, but death. Chuck is dead. Of course, yeah. of course, of course, of course. <laughs> I just mean like the the, the trials and tribulations yeah. of that band. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like yeah. It's I mean shudder. You know, you know when somebody is that driven uh, and has that sort of, um, you know, knows exactly what they want. They can be difficult to work with. You know, and I, you know, I feel for those guys. They were like on a tour and they're like, we want to finish this fucking tour. Very difficult to do without the guy. Yeah. You know, but. You know, I guess they pulled it off. They they finished the tour at least. Yeah. Um, but fuck yeah. <laughs> it's brutal. I, I, it definitely. I I know that like it was never meant to be for for myself and Matt or even Cam Lee, for that matter, the drummer who left to be in death because at that time you had you know Cam went on to form Massacre. We restarted our band. You had like three guys who all could be front men of bands in that band. Right. Two guitar players with different um, sort of ideas on how to move forward. It was just too much. There was too much um, creativity in that band for yeah. it to last. Right. It was just like, kind of like with Dave Mustaine, you know, as much as he wishes he was still in Metallica, He's way better off. Like that's the the best thing that ever happened to him was getting kicked out of Metallica. Right, because right. he's a front man. Imagine if he'd have got kicked out three years later. What would he would he have gone out and started a great band like he did? He probably wouldn't have. Yeah. I mean, we'll never know. But yeah. like, it wouldn't have been as easy for him to pick up the pieces and and start over if he got kicked out after the second album or sure, something. Sure, you know sure. what I mean? Like, it was good timing for him. And. I would say it, it worked out well. <laughs> and then, so when did you when when did you decide that you wanted to come out here? Then uh, that was after. I mean, I was I came out here in '98, okay, and so I was much I later kind then. yeah I kind of came out here because I was like done with music. You yeah. Know? I, I when I moved to Chicago, like you know, I kind of fucked around in Michigan for a couple of years, just kind of like you know partying. And after the band broke up. I worked at a record store, so life was easy, you know, like it was like a big fish in a small pond. Mm -hmm. um, I had a lot of friends and um, we partied a lot. But after a while, I was like starting to get a little bit older. I was like 25 and I was like, okay, it's time to fucking do something different. My girlfriend at the time was like, I'm fucking getting out of here and going to Chicago. So I moved to Chicago 
and then her and I just kind of like we were kind of already like our relationship was falling apart but it was like well I'll follow you to Chicago let's see if we can make it work we got an apartment we both just sort of drifted apart as soon as we got there and I uh started um playing with Cathedral okay uh, a friend of mine from Detroit there used to be you remember concrete foundations no it was like an industry rag that was like a and they did a lot of promotions and stuff it was like a promotion company okay. they had a little magazine that they sent out to record stores and industry people that was all about they used to do like conventions like CMJ right in right. LA and maybe New York too that were like metal based wow and um you know they were promoting shit like Voivod and uh, Metallica whatever and uh, all the hair metal bands that were coming out, as well as, you know, probably Napalm Death and things like that. Yeah. So um, anyway, they ran an ad that Cathedral was looking for a bassist. This is like shortly after they got signed to Columbia. And a friend of mine who owned a record store in Detroit kept calling me and going, dude, you got to do this. You got to be, we all loved Cathedral. Yeah. Um, the Cathedral was pretty much my favorite, like new band at that time. Just because it was such a breath of fresh air to hear this like super slow, right. heavy band, and they had great songs, and you know everything had gotten so fast, right. and I sort of like lost interest in the speed stuff after Repulsion. I was kind of like, I think we took it to where, to in my mind, was the logical conclusion. Like getting any more um, heavy than that, it was kind of like you were were lying on things that weren't organic anymore, mm -hmm. like. Uh, clicky fucking like, drums yeah, and drums, yeah, triggers, yeah, that's triggers it and it doesn't work. Yeah. Pedals that were like changing the tonality of a guitar sure. into something more brutal than what a guitar. You know, we did it with like a right. Marshall and an right. overdrive pedal, right? And the bass was just like a fucking distortion guitar distortion pedal plugged in. Right. It was there was no ma fancy shit you going just on. Hit it hard. Yeah. Yeah. Hit it hard and played it as like recklessly as possible. And I thought, okay, if we go any more extreme than this, it's not really going to be musical anymore. So yeah. I kind of thought when we recorded Horrified, I'm like, that's it. I think that's all I have to say on this subject next. And so the band, you know, it was, it was sort of natural. We didn't really break up. We just sort of like all lost interest in it. Right. And all at the same because, time. Uh, this was Napalm Death had had reissued your guys stuff before this or later they did that? right a, like a couple years after we split up the right. record came finally right. came out gotcha, we gotcha. recorded this demo it was intended to be an album if somebody had picked it up at the time we may have like gone on to like be like a cannibal corpse type thing where we just <laughs> did it for the rest of our life probably not because right. we probably would have lost interest at some point anyway but who knows what would have happened if we'd have if that record would have got picked up we might have made a few more albums or who knows we might have still be slogging away making records or something but um because we just sort of fell apart and i moved to chicago started playing with uh by the time i started playing with um cathedral the napalm death guy or it was actually um jeff walker and bill steer from oh, yeah. carcass carcass they, yeah they got it put out on vinyl through earache and um so i started playing with uh cathedral um i i did finally make the call and they were still looking for a bass player and I knew Lee and Gaz already a little bit from their previous US tour and uh, so they just kind of like shooed me in I didn't really 
so much audition as I did just go jam with the band and go, all right, cool. They were getting ready to go to Japan. And uh, so I wasn't able to do that trip because they had already um, had it. It was all booked. It was like they were leaving in a couple of days. Right. So the guy who played bass, and all that shit. <laughs> yeah, the guy yeah. who was playing bass for them at that time was this guy named Mike Hickey, who used to be in Carcass. He, he was a touring member of Carcass. He was also in Kronos, uh-huh. and he was in Venom. He replaced Mantis in Venom okay. at a couple, on a couple of occasions. And uh, he also, um, <laughs> after he was done like touring in bands and stuff, he became uh he started working for daryl hall (laughs) which is kind of like wow this dude from venom and carcass and shit he works for daryl hall and now he's like uh uh, the main guitar tech for uh joe bonamassa wow and um like i still keep in touch with him a little bit on on uh social media and stuff but he's like he's had a pretty wild career yeah um you know going from chronos to carcass to cathedral and all around but um so he went to japan uh, at that time with uh cathedral and when they got back i jumped in and started touring with them and did that for a couple years and then i my i was living in chicago the whole time um even though i was playing in a band from england i was living in chicago but they were signed to a major label so it was easy there was always like a plane ticket was to england was nothing for them so when cathedral got dropped i had to quit because it was like uh i either would have had to move to england which at that time like i may (laughs) you know lee now lives in london lee dorian he's been a you know dear friend of mine ever since i joined cathedral so we we still talk all the time sure and uh so uh but lee was living in coventry at that time which is kind of like flint michigan so i was like man i I don't really want to leave Chicago and go live in like the British version of Flint. Yeah. I just, I just got out of that, you know? So if he had been living in London at the time, I may have gone over, but it was just like the whole, I had to think about my life at that time. And like, um, I just, unfortunately I, I had to leave cathedral, which sucked cause I loved playing in that band. Yeah. And then I ended up doing it again years later. Sure. But, um, so I hung around Chicago for a couple more years, and I was playing in like a power pop band. We made a couple 45s. Um, the band is called Hush Drops. They're actually still um, doing stuff. And uh, You have a remarkable way of playing with people that are still playing after all these yeah, years. It's yeah, kind of I mean, wild. <laughs> yeah. John San Juan, the guy who I played with in Hush Drops, he's like a brilliant songwriter, musician, um, turned me on to a whole other world of you know just quality music and like him and joe the drummer who recently passed away like they were just both great um harmonizers and great fucking songwriters and they just were really good at like experimental experimenting in the studio and like it was amazing to watch them work i learned a lot from those guys but then i just um Chicago was also becoming a place where I wasn't getting anything done. I never so really I considered that town to be much of like a music town, really, for like local bands and stuff. There's a lot of good music there. I mean, it's, you know, not a lot um, gets discovered because yeah. it is definitely not like an industry town. There's, there's always cool bands. Like if you're out 
locally, you'll see a lot of cool bands. And I yeah. mean, you had like Smashing Pumpkins and Urge Overkill and um, Baruch Assault. I've always loved playing there, and I've always loved it as a town. And just yeah. the people are awesome, and like yeah. it's such a great place to be, and it looks so cool and stuff. But I've just never seen a lot of bands come out of there, you know, for how big it is, yeah. you know. Um, whereas then you take like fucking Michigan or Ohio, and you have s- s- per capita so much great music you know oh yeah in the midwest you know i mean they had a you know a couple of uh you know bands not far from there like cheap trick sure and, uh, trouble yeah yeah but uh yeah it definitely for the size of city it is it hasn't produced as many winners as uh, you would think yeah compared to you know new york and la and or even detroit, detroit. Yeah. yeah or Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> That's my, Cleveland, my favorite yeah. music city. I did love Chicago. It is a great city. But, you know, I came out here thinking like, okay, no more bands. Um, I'm going to get my shit together and get a proper job. And I came out here like Matt Olivo from Repulsion was already living out here. Oh, does he live out here now? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he was uh, at the time like uh, working at a post house. And he was like, hey, you know, like come out. To, uh, and I was like, man, I do that. I don't know. Uh, he was kind of, you know, trying to talk me in like moving out here. And I, at the time when I was thinking about leaving Chicago, I didn't know really where I wanted to go. But L.A. wasn't on my radar because I just never had the greatest experiences here. Yeah. Like visiting. I just thought it was kind of cheesy. Yeah. You know, if you come through L.A. on tour, especially if you're in like a heavy metal band, you're probably not. Well, now it's different. Now you probably would be playing downtown or in Silver Lake or not necessarily Silver Lake. That's not even cool anymore. But, you know, you're probably playing in some cool neighborhood and there's like hip people putting on metal shows there and stuff. There's a ton of underground metal and hardcore shows here now. Yeah. I mean, I think also just because of post-COVID, like mm-hmm. nobody's playing like the Echo anymore. Like, and because they're, they're bought by whoever they're bought by mm-hmm. now. And it's just like I see so much shit that like I'm not even cool enough to be invited yeah, to exactly. anymore, and I I see it later, and I'm yeah. just like fuck. How come I didn't know about? It? No <laughs> one told me that this rad show was happening at the L.A. River, like you know. Yeah. So it's pretty wild, like what kids are doing right now. But yeah, here. when we would come through L.A., it was like we were playing at the Palace, uh, which is now called Avalon. You know, mm-hmm. in, in the heart of Hollywood, opening for Merciful Fate or whatever, and. And then after the show, the record label's like, oh, we're going to take you guys to the Rainbow or whatever. And and, um, so my experience in L.A. was always like the Sunset Strip, which I actually like. I'm not a, I'm not. No, it's fine. I don't fucking hate on the Strip. I think it's fucking great. But, uh, um, you know, there's some, those clubs are also great to play. Like the. I don't know so much about the whiskey. Um, I've played there a couple times, but like the Troubadour and the Roxy we, and uh, Viper Room. Yeah. Like, what other club um, the size of the Viper Room do you walk into? And the guys are like, they give a shit. The yes. sound guy yes. gives a shit. He wants you yes. to sound good. Yes. The light guy wants you to look. I know good. it's wild. They have a curtain so that no one sees your fucking ass crack yeah. while you're plugging in your I pedals because you don't nice. have any roadies. We played the Roxy with Red Fang, and it was like that the same thing. And then I played the Troubadour before, where it's just like, oh, these people are like, there's like union guys running on stage yeah. to like get the instruments <laughs> off before the next band, and like it's like being in Europe, yep. you know, where like. The sound people actually give a shit about yeah. what's going on. They help you and yeah. they treat you fucking humanely, yeah. which doesn't happen at a lot of these so-called underground clubs where they throw you a couple drink tickets and fucking push you out the door. You sure. know, like you, 
if you're the opening, even if you're a local band, if you're the opening act at the Troubadour, there's probably a fucking tub of beer in your dressing room. Yeah. And you're, you're taken care of. And oh, you have class. a dressing room. Yeah. That's all we're asking for at this stage in the game. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, getting back to, uh, you know, moving out here, it was just like, I didn't think LA was, was the place for me. But then when I got here, I sort of fell in with, um, you know, people like Johnny Whitmer from the Stitches and... He's oh, in yeah. Crazy Squeeze now. He became yeah. one of my really good friends. And uh, I started realizing, oh, there's actually like regular, normal, fucking hardworking sure. people who are cool and genuine. Well, I had the same thing coming from Portland and then Seattle, which was like, you, we just, you, LA sucks, you know? Yeah. Fuck LA. Like, we're never going to go to LA, you know? That's, yeah. that's the worst. That's the antithesis of what we are, you know? We're in the rain. We're like, you know, yep. we're not good looking, you know? So we hated it, you know? But I turned my back on all those posers. Um, <laughs> yeah. So when I when I came out here, I ended up back in a band because I saw the Super Bees play. Yeah. And like Johnny Whitmer was like, there was you know it was like a fucking Tuesday night or something, and they were playing at Bar Deluxe at like nine p.m. What or year something. was that then? Ninety eight. Okay, because I graduated like, high school in ninety eight, and then I started in like ninety nine. I was in Seattle, and I was playing in this band, the Valentine Killers, and we yeah. played with the Super Bees, yeah. or I saw the Super Bees, maybe with you in it on at some Las Vegas grind. Oh or yeah, some, the, one the of Shakedown, these Las you know, Vegas Shakedown. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we might have played a show together at the Garage too, or something. Yeah, we the, used to play there. The Garage, like the, yeah, all the fucking time. Like, like Texas Terry. Yep. Um, we did a million shows with Texas Terry yeah. and uh, Flash Express. Yes. And, oh, yeah, the um, Flash Express. I forgot. <laughs> there was, uh, fuck, there were so many bands. So many garage rock bands. But, I mean, I was obsessed with, like, uh, at that time I was, like, obsessed with, like, the Candy Snatchers, the Humpers, um, uh, all the kind of <laughs> dead boy, New Bomb Turks, because I loved how yeah. fast they were. Um, the Makers, yeah. like all these bands, because yeah, the Makers were great, from Spokane, time. and I was from the Tri City, so they were only like a couple hours away from me. And I couldn't believe that there's like this '60s garage rock band, and like I'd heard that they got in fights all the time, and so I was like into all these bands, you know. Like, oh yeah, Candy Snatchers were fucking amazing. Yeah, I, mean, I really, they were like my one of my favorites from that era. They were real deal, like fucked up dudes, because we played with them, and I can't remember what the Matt. Uh, the guitar player's name yeah. was like Matt Odorous or something yeah, yeah. like that. Um, maybe it's a fake name. It reminded me of like a Guar name. Um, but he, I remember he. he Matty uh, Odietis. Or yeah, or Odietis. Yeah, I'm a yeah. Greek guy or something yeah, yeah. like that. But he, we played a show, and after the show, uh, he asked me how old I was, and I said, I think I was like 21. And I said, Oh, I'm 21. And he goes, Oh, you look like fucking shit. And I always remember that. <laughs> I've seen that guy do some amazing shit. He's dead now. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah. The uh, they when I right after I moved out here they played with uh, Nashville Pussy at the Troubadour yes and like unlike I had seen Nashville Pussy a couple times in Chicago and it was always that like some, you know some hole in the wall bar uh, out here they were playing they headlining the Troubadour and it's fucking sold out yeah yeah and like nobody gives a shit who the opening band is it's the, and the Candy Snatchers are up there playing oh, yeah. and fucking I think I saw that Maddie part. like walks up to the edge of the stage. And turns around, there's like some guy in the front with his arms folded. And he turned around and grabbed a guy by the back of his head and just shoved the kid's face in his fucking ass, which probably smelled like tour ass. Yeah, you know, no, like. I did. I smelled him, yeah, <laughs> as he was insulting me. Yeah, Yeah. so uh, 
Yeah, yeah those guys were great. I took a, a friend of mine one time to see them play in the back of a Mexican restaurant in Chicago. And because uh, I had seen them somewhere else. And uh, the next time they came around, I was like, fuck, you got it. You guys have got to go see the Candy Snatchers. They're fucking amazing. So I dragged all these people, all my friends, like, you know, everyone's like, all right, let's see what this fucking band is all about. And we go in, they set up their gear, and like before they even start playing a song, they start arguing. Yeah. And they get into a fist fight, and they fucking knock all their fucking gear over and get kicked out of the bar before they'd even played a note. It was fucking great. I love that. I love those guys. <laughs> bands like that, like Zeke, and all, not, not that they even sound anywhere near remotely like Zeke, but just kind of that attitude of like really not giving a fuck yeah it know? was just like you know taking the the punk rock ethics and, and just applying it to whatever sort of rock and roll you were into like some of those bands are a little bit rockabilly there were garage bands like the devil dogs or something like that yeah like, and, i also loved you know and, you know candy snatchers you know like were like tapping rubber city rebels and shit like that and uh there was just tons of fucking great music. That first Las Vegas shakedown was fucking incredible, like debaucherous weekend of rock and roll. Yeah, I can't. I think I had gotten kicked out of the band at that point, but I uh, I still went. Uh, I was still friends with them or whatever, or you know, I I was friends with them. I don't know if they were friends with me, but I went to that one and I I don't think I played at it, but I remember going to it and it, I'm trying to remember. Like I think like. Everybody, there was all sorts of just crazy stories of people shitting in elevators and all sorts yeah. of good, good times. It certainly was. Yeah, so I, I started playing, I saw the Super Beast play at, um, at Bar Deluxe, and uh, I was like, oh, this band's fucking great. You know, they just kind of like were right up my alley, very Detroit. You know, yeah. Dave, Dave James, the vocalist, is killer guitar player. He's like just fucking, you know, like, you know, like, bending his lips around and fucking <laughs> guitars like slung down by his knee. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, greasy hair and fucking, they just, they were fucking awesome. I thought they were incredible. Just very Detroit. Yeah. Not what I was expecting to see when I came to LA. Right. And uh, they were looking for a guitar player and I was like, fuck yeah, I want to play in that band. So here yeah. I was in a band again. But I did manage to maintain um, my, my job trajectory and, I kept working. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you because we're kind of getting up on the time here, and I feel like we did cover a ton of stuff, and we could probably go longer. But um, you kind of, how do you uh, sort of see yourself now, like balancing all this stuff with like you're going to go play with Repulsion next year at that Northwest Tour, uh, uh, Northwest Terror Fest, Um, and then I'm sure you guys got other shows planned. Yeah, we're playing in Atlanta next in in November. We're playing LA in December. Uh, you know, we book about three shows a year. Like, uh, recently we got, a, I think we have about three on the books next year and, uh, somebody will usually like throw in, throw up a flag. Like, uh, you know, a couple months ago, a few more offers came in and Matt was just like, you know what? I've, I've already committed myself to like three shows next year. That's, right. that's cool. And like, nobody cares. Like right. nobody in the band is like, dude, we have to play this show. Yeah. It's kind of like, all right, cool. If no, if if one person doesn't want to do it, I'm fine with like, I'm not going to argue. Maybe if it was something really like 
special i might sure. i might go come on dude like you know play this one show but if it's if it's in general i'm just like okay if he doesn't want to do it or or chris our drummer uh doesn't want to do it there's no pushback but you for know me. when you have that relationship with someone too if it was something that was really special then they would go like i'll do it whatever you know i'll figure it out or whatever yeah you know, like most stuff isn't that way anymore but you know yeah. there's like i think um the one in December school, we're playing with Exciter, and like uh, I was, I'm just kind of like, wow, man, like you know, 17 year old me is kind of shitting myself right Where's now. Where's Exciter from? They're from uh, Ottawa. Okay. Wow. Ontario. Yeah, yeah I knew it was ca- Canadian. I just yeah. can't remember where exactly. Yeah. But yeah, they're they're um, so that you know, it's just kind of like uh, it's easy. I mean, even like. Um, I've always had like, you know, pretty cool bosses since I've been out here. Um, um, my boss up until recently uh, is like, he would do like team building uh, events where we would go see Cannibal Corpse and uh, Napalm Death and shit like that. He's like super into hardcore yeah. metal and punk and stuff. So uh, it's always been easy for me to like get a couple, even when like when I rejoined Cathedral and it was like, it was a pretty heavy tour. It wasn't like a tour schedule so much, but it was a lot of gigs Yeah. over the course of the last year of the band, just kind of a steady stream of gigs here and there. And a couple of small tours. We went to Japan and uh, Greece and did a couple festival runs. We went to Australia for a couple of weeks and I've never had any problems getting time off to do that kind of stuff because it's usually not enough to where I'm gone long enough to really disrupt the flow of my work. Right. But yeah, I mean, now I just, I can't stop playing music at this point. It's like I'm, you know, working on uh, recordings with uh, Death Breath, which is um, Nick Anderson from The Helicopters and Entombed and Robert Pearson from Humbucker. Um, Those guys are I mean, I would never turn down an opportunity to play any kind of music those guys asked me to because they're just fun to hang out with. And yeah. Do you guys just send stuff to each other? Is that the way? It, yeah. Yeah. You know, I did another record with Lee and Gaz from Cathedral a couple of years ago, like a hardcore. The septic sort death. Of, yeah, septic tank thing. Septic tank, yeah. 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 Made a record with uh That Church record's great. That septic tank record oh, is great. I love that record. It's, it didn't really get noticed too much. It just kind of like fell through the cracks or something. We didn't really do a lot to promote it. We only played Japan. Yeah. We didn't really book any gigs or anything. I mean, I feel like I, I, we talked about it earlier, but I feel like there's a really weird, like kind of hardcore resurgence thing happening, at least in LA for sure. I mean, I feel like if you guys would put out that record now, it would have been more people would have heard it, but I don't know. I mean, you know. Yeah, it's like I, you know, Repulsion doesn't make music anymore, but I've, I've still like managed to make like you know a good ten records or something over the last twenty years. Which I mean, if if you were, if it was like one band, I guess that's about how many records you'd make during right. that time. So right. sometimes I think like, oh, I haven't done anything, and then I look and I'm like, oh wait, I did all these records are just with different people. You yeah, know? and I kind of like that. I kind of dig like. Um, uh, just rather than like staying under one banner like the whole time and like you know if you get to a certain if you, if you make a career out of that you kind of can pigeonhole yourself into like um, you know I'm not saying it's like that for every band but you know like a cannibal corpse or a band like that that's been around for 25 30 years obituary or something they 
they, I feel like they probably can't go too far outside of the boundaries of what they do without sure. like pissing off the people that buy the records. And it almost kind of like boxes you into a, a routine right. sort of. Right. Um, and also, unless you sell a billion records, you kind of have to keep doing it. You got you got roadies and family to feed and everything else that sort of you just sort of have to get stuck in that cycle. And I don't like doing things like that. I like to make music when I feel inspired to do it rather than when I'm like pressured to do it. Yeah, I will say that that I think I love that new Cannibal Corpse record. I think it's fucking great. The last couple have sounded really good. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. But but it is interesting. It's like you almost have like the life of like a, like a session musician, but not in the way of like you got to come in here and like learn this thing perfectly and play it like. But just you can play with a lot of different people. But like yeah. in in you don't see that. I guess I guess you don't see that that much in like kind of what I consider like punk rock you know I, I consider that a, like a country thing or like a you know what I mean or like <laughs> yeah. a mainstream radio thing or something where well th these bands like you know you know Cannibal Corpse they seem to be like on an upward swing um Napalm Death also the yeah. last couple of records have been fucking incredible and um you know there's been other ones where it was just kind of like oh there's another Napalm Death record and it it just I'm sure it kind of goes in waves but Maybe they're inspired uh, in the last few years because there has just been like a there's way more interest. The fan there's more people. Well, what we were talking shows. about, I mean, in the late '90s when we were when you were playing in Super Bees and I was playing in Valentine Killers and playing these kind of garage rock bands, like you didn't see that fandom for metal that you do now. Like yeah. I saw Motorhead to like I think there was 500 people there and they're touring with like Dropkick Murphys or something yeah. like in Hatebreed and it was just so weird you know and then you know because I think maybe the internet or whatever but like Motorhead now is just massive you know I would say the internet has a lot to do with it because I see how it has affected the or like a band popular. like Dead Moon like yeah massive now like yeah. as far as the amount of people i see wearing the shirts or whatever repulsion it ha uh, has the same yeah um benefits from the same thing i mean like uh i can't imagine without the internet that people like i thought that when we broke up like okay that's it these recordings will just be forgotten and even when it came out on vinyl i'm like cool now at least somebody has it right and it's still in fucking print it yeah. sells as many copies now as it did the fucking year it came out and that blows me away and it really is all down to the internet it's just like people can like research things and like they they know like the history of sure. you know, like these young young people now they're also like blows my mind how um uh, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but you see the like the vast uh, array of influences that these young bands have. Like I've, I've, you see these bands that are like uh, that look like Motley Crue, and you like drop the needle on it, and it sounds like fucking death metal, and then it's got like an emo chorus. Right. It's like in one song, it sounds like Napalm Death, uh, an emo band, and Motley Crue all in the same song. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking weird to me. I like I, I don't like that kind of music. I, I don't like you're, you put, you're doing too much different shit. Yeah, I don't like, like it either. I, I guess there's an audience for it though because this 
some of these bands are pretty popular. I, I guess it's just the, the, their ability to take in all sorts of uh, multitask in a way that my brain doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't, I, I'm, the way I'm recording this podcast right now, if someone younger who knew what they were doing would be like, what the fuck are you doing it with that thing? Yeah. You know, it's because it, I'm like, because it has buttons. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. That's all I know. Like, so. Yeah, they're not blending these styles together. It's like they're just cutting and pasting the styles together almost like a like a collage or something you know and it's, yeah it doesn't it's not blended in a way where you can't pick out like what it is there like you listen to Voivod like what the fuck is what's influencing Voivod or other than the obvious like obviously hardcore bands and like well know. I think that they the thing about Voivod is that they mixed hardcore with like this weird uh, love of like almost like psychedelic music, you yeah. know, which is what to me makes them so special yeah. because it's so it's like hardcore, but it's also bizarre at the same time. Yeah. Like they were using delay pedals and shit even yeah. on their first album, but it wasn't. Yeah, it was more like of a of a you know, it was all woven together yeah. in a way that sounded super original instead of just like oh here's this fucking I I thought this band sounded like fucking cannibal corpse but then like 30 seconds later the guy's singing all wimpy or whatever yeah, yeah. And yeah. Then it goes into something else and yeah and you're like uh well if it, depending on where you drop the needle uh you might just fucking get turned off by it in like 10 seconds and it's a, and these these bands are they're thousands these of kids today <laughs> well i think we can end it there because i think yeah we could get into these kids today very easily um but uh yeah so uh thank you for doing it my pleasure appreciate it thanks for having me yep